This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is former U.S. Ag Secretary and current President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, Tom Bilsack. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry provides individualized protection on more than 300 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Light continues with USDEC's Tom Pilsack next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 300 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The nation's dairy farmers have suffered economic hardship from a domestic oversupply and the challenge of gaining greater access to global markets. USDEC's Tom Vilsack says the nation's dairy industry faces both opportunity and challenge in the international market. Vilsack suggests the U.S. may need to consider how milk is valued in the lens of global demand. Well, I think some folks are beginning to raise questions about whether or not the, the way in which we value milk, the way in which we compensate the farmer for the milk that's produced, needs to be changed. You know, it was a system that was set up some time ago, and I don't think at the time it was set up that the market that we had at that point was so divided between domestic and exports. I think primarily we were a domestic-oriented industry, and the pricing system reflected that. Uh, I think it's going to be important in the future for uh, that system to reflect the growing importance of exports, particularly of uh, high-value products like cheese and some of the milk protein concentrates that can, I think, improve the milk check and make it a little bit more profitable than it has been. Thinking then of the globe, what's the story on global consumption of dairy? We hear so much about the hungry and and the need for food. Where does dairy fit in this story in terms of a consumer standpoint? Well, that's an interesting question, and you phrased it in an interesting way. I think on the one hand, obviously, the population of the world continues to grow, so there's going to be a demand for the basics of milk uh, and the need for developing countries to have access to milk uh, to make sure that their children in particular grow up as healthy and as strong as possible. At the same time, uh, there are middle classes that are growing in many of these developing countries, and those middle classes are living in cities, and they are uh, very anxious to partake in, in Western-style foods. So there's a, a rising demand in a number of countries for cheese. Uh, there's a focus on health and wellness, and so therefore it plays to the strengths of, of milk protein concentrates that can be put in bars and uh, beverages that are for uh, health and fitness uh, uh, purposes. There's a senior population in many of these countries that is awakening to the fact that protein can be helpful to them. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity here, uh, both on the basic side uh, of, of the need for milk generally, and specifically in these developing countries, playing to the strength of the U.S. Uh, dairy producer being able to produce those high-value products that can be sold and potentially increase incomes uh, here in the United States. Which products do we have that we are certainly more competitive than others into the global scheme, or is it a geography, or is it a geography perspective of all of our dairy products? Well, again, great question and interestingly phrased because I think it's both. 
Uh, I think clearly we have a geographic advantage because of our proximity to Canada and Mexico. Uh, there's an opportunity there for us to grow market, uh, and we have grown market uh, in Mexico. It's our number one market, and that while the Canadian system is still closed and will and will continue to be closed, uh, the agreement that uh, Congress is currently considering would provide for a little bit more market access. So that would certainly be beneficial. You know, the reality is we have always been focused on a commodity orientation in terms of exports. That is to say, lactose, some of the lower value products we sell uh, a great deal of. 70% of all the milk powder that's produced in the country here in the U.S. is exported. Uh, But it is low value, uh, and so we have always been fairly competitive there. It's the higher value products where we're now trying to make uh, a competitive uh, effort the cheese, uh, the, the higher protein concentrates, uh, whey protein, uh, the rest of the world needs that product. Um, but we are in a fairly significant competition, obviously, with our friends in New Zealand and EU for the markets in, in Asia, uh, for the market opportunity in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, and we need to maintain our competitiveness. We need to deepen our presence and our relationships with those those countries. Uh, our, our competitors have had a relationship for 10, 15, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and we've only been in the markets for, say, 15 or 20 years. So they have built-in relationships that we have to we have to counter. Is the U.S. market the only place where you may be facing a challenge from some plant-based alternatives to milk? Not so much. I mean, obviously, there's that there are issues in other countries with this, but what's interesting is the Europeans understand and appreciate the difference between milk and plant-based beverages. Uh, they, they have basically been very adamant about the use of the term milk uh, to apply only to that uh, which comes from an animal. Uh, they've not allowed the plant-based beverages to utilize the good reputation of milk in their marketing. Uh, National Milk here in the, in the United States has made a concerted effort to try to put pressure uh, on the FDA to essentially uh, fulfill its responsibilities under current regulations, which essentially says milk has to come from an animal. Uh, the FDA has been looking at this issue for some time. Uh, they have suggested that they don't have the resources to be able to enforce uh, their regulation, and my attitude about that is if you don't have the resources, either you get the resources or or you have the, you know, you change the rule. Um, but we'll see what they, what they come up with. They, uh, they may come up with a circumstance and situation that says to plant-based beverages, you can't use the term milk unless you can show uh, nutritional equivalence. And that's fundamentally the issue, uh, Jeff. The, the reality is those plant-based beverages, if you compare the nutritional value of them to milk, they just don't compare. Uh, and they shouldn't be allowed to use the, the reputational uh, brand of milk uh, to be able to to um, uh, be able to convince the consumer that they're more nutritious than they in fact are. Well, we've been through the warm-up act of topics, and it's down to business now. With regard to trade, the one closest to home is the USMCA. I hear calls from both sides of the Capitol. I hear calls from both sides of the aisle to see this deal done. Why is this so critical to U.S. dairy farmers? Trade agreements are never easy to pass. Uh, I was part of the process to getting the South Korean trade agreement through, and that was a pretty solid deal for, for the U.S., and, uh, you know, it's always uh, problematic, it's always difficult, and the, and the margins of, uh, the vote margins are always very small. Uh, so hopefully we get this thing done before the end of this year, uh, because we don't want this bleeding over into uh, 2020, because there's obvious uh, politics involved in that year, and that can really uh, make it much more difficult for a trade agreement to get through the process. The reason why it's important, for at least from the dairy perspective, is 
there's about a $300 million new business opportunity in terms of expanded access to the Canadian market, a changing of the pricing system for their powder up there so that they can't export their surplus at a discount, uh, and, a, and a continued opening of the Mexican market to us without tariffs and without barriers, and at the same time, a side letter that uh, basically provides us uh, more due process in terms of this issue of geographic indications when the EU tries to monopolize certain cheese names. So on balance for dairy, uh, for wheat, uh, for poultry, uh, some positives for the other commodities, it basically maintains the status quo, which, uh, which in our number one market or one of our key markets is important. Well, when this deal was announced, I recall pushback, certainly from the dairy industry in Canada, and also still some pushback from the dairy industry here in the U.S. So is it the best deal we could ask for with the Canadians? Is it the best deal? No. Uh, we obviously could have gotten a lot more, for, uh, in theory, from the Canadians. But is it better than the current deal with NAFTA? Absolutely. And I think that's the standard. You know, and there's never a trade agreement that's perfect. Uh, there's never a trade agreement that satisfies everyone. The question I think that people who have to vote on this uh, need to ask themselves is, on balance, is this a better deal for the U.S. than it, the NAFTA? Does this modernize NAFTA? Does this create new opportunities for us in uh, industries that didn't exist at the time NAFTA was put into place? And does it provide expanded market opportunities for agriculture? And the answer is yes. Uh, and so based on that, I, I think I would find it hard at the end of the day if you're convinced that the provisions in the agreement can be enforced, and that's that's critically important. Uh, if you're convinced that they can be enforced and will be enforced, then I think you're you're basically put up the decision you have to make is, is this better than the current status? Yes, is it as good as it could have been? Uh, it's never as good as it could have been, but it's better, and that's the key. Mexico is a key, key market for dairy, key market for other U.S. agriculture commodities. How does this maintain and what opportunity does it allow us to grow if the USMCA is ratified? Well, the key for Mexico is not having tariffs, not having barriers to trade. Uh, we've seen a remarkable increase in the opportunities in Mexico because Mexican consumers are uh, utilizing dairy in a number of different ways. We are aggressively promoting both our cheese and ingredient side. We're going to have a seminar, for example, this fall, trying to convince the, the pork industry in Mexico uh, to use more uh, permeate, to use more whey protein in order to accelerate the growth of their uh, hogs in order to increase the number of pigs per sow. We think we can make that same case to our friends in China who are dealing with African swine fever. Uh, so we always are looking for creative ways to suggest that there are new opportunities that don't necessarily come at the expense of Mexican producers, but basically complement what their own dairy industry is doing. We've got a good relationship with Mexico. I'll be traveling down there next month uh, to re reinforce that relationship and that uh, that opportunity. Uh, so I think there's nothing but upside potential there as, again, middle classes grow, as, as populations increase. There's going to be more consumption, and that's more opportunity for us and for them. It was said that the Japanese and the Japanese market were the crown jewel of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, one of the major reasons that we needed to be involved. You're just back from Japan, and obviously the, our president and theirs discussing an agricultural deal. Is that a relief, and how much opportunity is there inside what some would say is a very mature market? We're currently at a disadvantage because the EU and New Zealand have the benefit of free trade agreements that create tariff uh, differentials uh, for ingredients and for cheese. And those differentials grow over time to the point where we could potentially lose the market share that we currently have and not 
benefit from the growth that's taking place in that market. Cheese imports for the first six months of this year are increased in uh, Japan by 7.5%. Fortunately, U.S. cheese sales to Japan have increased by 11% during that period of time. It's a growing market. It's expected to grow at about 4% a year for the next 10 years. If we have a level playing field, which we hope an agreement between the Japanese and the U.S. would provide, if we have a level playing field, then we can compete very effectively. We will probably see a doubling of volume and a tripling of, cheese, of uh, a value of cheese sales in, in that country alone, uh, which could take a $300 billion million market and make it close to a billion-dollar market. Uh, tremendous opportunity for us, but we got to have a level playing field, and that's what we hope the negotiations present is an opportunity for us to compete effectively based on the quality and the volume and the safety and the nutritional uh, quality of what we can produce. So this literally is a gain-or-lose market. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why it's important. And it's important, I think, in light of the fact that we've made the decision to pull out of the TPP, that we don't have the benefit of other trade agreements with other Southeast Asian countries where there is also a growing market opportunity. Uh, And so, you know, the reality is this administration prefers bilateral agreements. Fair enough. But we have to have bilateral agreements. We have to we have to consummate some of these agreements so that we begin to get the benefits of them. We can't just continue to negotiate. I think Ambassador Lighthizer has an incredibly full plate. I think he's done an amazing job given the challenges that he's been presented with. And I think uh, he's been working, I know, very hard on the Japanese uh, situation. And hopefully, fingers crossed, that uh, something gets announced here uh, when the president and prime minister meet later in the month. Were you well-received and are you hopeful? Absolutely uh, well-received and very hopeful. Uh, You know, (laughs) Uh, let me just give you one example. Um, there's an outfit called Curves, which is a fitness franchise in, that operates in Japan and a number of other countries. Uh, it's primarily directed at senior women. Uh, they have about 800,000 members, uh, and about 300,000 of those members purchase every month whey protein. Uh, about 50% of that whey protein that's consumed by those 300,000 uh, senior women is provided by the U.S., uh, they have uh, the desire and the interest in increasing their membership uh, and subscribers by 10%, so another 80,000 potential users of whey protein in Japan. They're opening up, uh, they have about 2,000 uh, of these fitness centers in Japan. They're opening up uh, one for men. They're thinking about expanding into China and Taiwan, Vietnam, Thailand, a number of other Southeast Asian countries, maybe even coming over to the U.S., so there is a tremendous opportunity for us, uh, and we have been working with that organization to market the effectiveness of whey protein for senior citizens. So that's the kind of thing that we're currently doing at U.S. DEC to expand market opportunities in some of the higher-value products, which can, I think, at the end of the day, make a big difference for processors and dairy producers here in the U.S. Let's shift the conversation to China. How much Do we have to? <laughs> Could the U.S.? allow the relationship with the Chinese to continue as status quo? Jeff, I think there's a debate taking place within the White House and within the administration as to whether or not we need to maintain the relationship that we've had, and which has grown over a period of years with the Chinese economy uh, and the interconnection between our two economies, or whether it's necessary for us to decouple our economies. And I don't know that that debate has been resolved. Uh, in the meantime, uh, The U.S. is requesting and asking in the negotiations for the Chinese to fundamentally change the way they do business with foreign companies in China. Uh, And that is a particularly heavy lift uh, for the Chinese because President Xi has basically based his whole economic plan on state-owned enterprises, on providing those state-owned enterprises a competitive edge 
uh, in China, uh, much uh, to the chagrin and much to the frustration of some of the American businesses that are located in China, who see their intellectual property taken and assumed by these state-owned enterprises uh, and, and essentially providing a competitive edge. So we're fundamentally asking them to, to really change the way they do business. We're not necessarily offering them anything other than a relief from tariffs that we, we placed uh, on products uh, that are coming into the U.S. from China. So it's a tough negotiation, and, and I think until that issue within the administration is resolved one way or the other, I think it becomes incredibly difficult. Uh, and so I, I believe we're in this for the long haul, um, and I think we obviously have seen dramatic reductions in sales to China. The first five months of 2018, we were on pace for a record year in terms of exports to China. Uh, this year, we, we've seen a, a market decline. Uh, part of that is the tariffs, and part of it is the African swine fever, which has decimated their hog industry. When I went over there and met with uh, Chinese officials, what I attempted to do was to try to reinforce the notion that this relationship, at least between U.S. agriculture, the U.S. dairy industry, and China, is important to maintain, and suggested that we might be able, we meaning U.S. dairy industry, might be able to help them rebuild their hog industry that's been decimated. It goes back to the comments I made about Mexico with whey protein and, and permeate. We can create ways in which they can accelerate uh, growth of, of, of pigs to get them to market sooner. We can accelerate the number of, of litters per sow so that at the end of the day they can rebuild their industry more quickly. Uh, that was an offer that was made in an effort to try to say, look, we know there are differences between government to government, but at the end of the day, uh, farmers want to help other farmers. Uh, farmers are sort of universal value system here. Uh, we, we stand ready to provide that help and assistance if we can get things worked out on the trade side. So what would happen if we did nothing? Well, uh, the Europeans, the New Zealand uh, folks would, would further cement their relationships on, on, on dairy and, and uh, Brazil, Argentina, and some of our South American competitors on the commodity side would uh, further cement their relationship with China. Australia would further cement its relationship with China on beef. Um, and we would essentially be locked out of a fairly significant large market at, at the end of the day. We would uh, essentially only be able to sell things which were absolutely necessary for the Chinese uh, for one reason or another uh, that, that they couldn't get elsewhere. Um, and that would obviously create uh, the impetus for us to look for other markets and for some commodities that's not a problem. I mean, you know, dairy can look at Southeast Asia, can look at Korea, can look at Japan, can look at the Middle East, uh, and find potentially a, a home for some of, of what they would have otherwise sold to China. Uh, some of our other commodities uh, aren't aren't as fortunate. It'd be very difficult to find a, a, a customer for the amount of soybeans that we were selling to China, for example. Looking inside the Chinese market, assuming that we can mend relations, what does that mean for dairy? I'll just tell you, last year we had a record year in exports. Uh, roughly 15.8, of all the milk that was produced, milk solids that were produced, were exported. Um, that would have been 17% if we just had the Chinese market, uh, uh, access to the Chinese market without the necessity of having to deal with these tariffs. So a full percent uh, of milk production to one country. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a lot of money. Uh, that's a lot of product. Uh, and there's a lot of upside potential there because obviously their their population is going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to urbanize. They're they're building mega cities, um, uh, you know, cities that that will potentially have uh, 30, 40, 50, 80 million people living in them. Uh, cities that will have young people who want to uh, grab and go, that want nutrition 
quickly, easily, without the necessity of preparing foods, which plays potentially to the strengths of our ingredients. Young people who will uh, spend a lot of time eating it outside the home, they will want to have products that are consumed and developed in restaurants. Well, there's a tremendous opportunity for us to make cheese, American cheese, uh, accessible to those uh, to those diners. So there's <laughs> there's a lot of upside potential to a country that's got 1.3 billion people. Um, where their economy continues to grow and the middle class continues to expand. Is there another China out there, either as an individual country or as a block of countries? Well, there is. Uh, India um, uh, is is a country, but you know they have a very closed system. Uh, the other opportunity is to look at Southeast Asia as a as a block, which is why we're uh, going to establish a center of dairy excellence in Singapore in an effort to try to make sure that we are. Uh, spending enough time and attention uh, in Southeast Asia. Uh, there's an opportunity, for example, in Indonesia. Indonesia is currently having a, a bit of a, a, a tussle with the Europeans over uh, palm oil and the environmental impacts of uh, producing palm oil. Uh, so they're now beginning to look away from the European Union, which has been the primary source of their dairy, uh, to looking at additional market opportunities with the U.S. Uh, there's a country that's got hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. So um, so there are other opportunities, but, you know, uh, we, we spent a lot of time and, and invested a lot of effort in trying to build opportunities in relationship with China. It would be a, uh, unfortunate if that went to, uh, if we didn't get the full benefit of that. Okay. I've got and one. just give you one example. I'm sorry. I'm one sorry. Example, just, yeah, just real quickly. One example. Costco just opened up a store in, in Shanghai. We have a partnership uh, with Costco. Uh, they were just overwhelmed with people interested in becoming members to Costco. So there's an opportunity for us to market U.S. cheeses in a, in a U.S. company doing business in China. Mr. Secretary, we want to thank you very much for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic. You've been a guest before, and you know you get the last word today. Well, Jeff, I just want to thank you uh, for getting the word out, uh, for continuing to provide information to those producers out there. I just hope that uh, that they continue to have hope. Uh, they continue to see the, uh, the, the tremendous work that they do and the benefits that they have to growing populations around the world, healthier, stronger kids uh, everywhere in large part because of dairy. So thanks to all the dairy producers who may be listening today. Our thanks to U.S. Dairy Export Council President and CEO, former Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack, our guest this week on the Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.